everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Myo Minds podcast. I am your host, George, and today I am here with Dr. Carolyn Plato. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? Hi, George. Really nice to be on the pod. Um, thank you for having me. I'm I'm really good. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. I, I thank you so much for coming on. Um, me and Carolyn know each other from when I was doing my master's degree at Loughborough. Carolyn was my dissertation supervisor, so I've wanted to have her on for ages, and it's so glad that we can finally. You know, you're I'm, you're a very very busy person, so I'm so happy to actually have you on and be speaking to you about this stuff. Absolute pleasure. No, it's always good to to have a chat about this stuff. I know we've we've had our conversations about it over the over the past couple of years. So it's nice to nice to finally come on the podcast and have a chat about it. Yeah, I'm very excited to start. So to start off, oh, actually, as well for the listeners at home, today is also a very special day because it is the 27th of April, 2021, otherwise known as my 25th birthday. So Woo-hoo. everyone <laughs> listening, make sure if you're on Apple podcast comment below saying happy birthday to me uh, <laughs> i feel like not, we should sing george <laughs> oh, no let's not do that <laughs> let's definitely not do that no one wants to hear my i'm sure you have a lovely singing voice but nobody wants to hear mine uh, <laughs> so to start off um one thing because you are i would i would say an expert in eating disorders especially within the, the athlete population and we speak a lot about eating disorders on this podcast but I don't think anyone has ever kind of given us a a general definition for what they are um and I'm not sure I I can think of like how to actually define it myself so how do you define an eating disorder yeah sure it's a really good good question and I think uh there's a lot of assumptions isn't there isn't there about kind of what people understand by um the notion of an eating disorder and I'm not sure that we're always on the same page as each other mm. and actually it's probably a really a really good place to start to make sure that everyone kind of has the same similar understanding um so i tend to define eating disorders as severe psychological disorders that are characterized particularly by some form of disturbed relationship or disturbed attitudes towards eating and food um, consumption So there's lots of different types of eating disorders and kind of the nature of that disturbance around food will vary uh, Mm. according to um, kind of what category of eating disorders that the patterns um, fall into. Um, So in the the DSM, the the kind of clinical uh, manual for for kind of uh, defining um, mental health problems, uh, people have tried to characterize eating disorders according to the presentation of those disturbances or those Mm. patterns of 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 problems that people have with with food so for example we see people who um, present with binge eating uh, behaviors where they eat lots of food in a very short amount of time there are people with who do that but then also kind of purge um, so try and get rid of the food in in some way and then there's people who just restrict the amount of food um, that they eat um, uh, to a very extreme amount. Yeah. And, and those would kind of fall into the categories of binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa. 
Um, and whilst that sounds very neat and nice, uh, I'm sure you've, you've spoken about this before, but actually it's not always quite that straightforward. You know, mm. lots of people present with, with different aspects of all of those different types of, of um, disturbances and, uh, and, and kind of perhaps oscillate between different types of disturbances with their food. So may start off with, with kind of restriction around um, their eating Mm-hmm. and trying to kind of cut down on how much they're consuming or getting rid of certain kind of food groups um but then may progress to, to kind of more binge purge um type behaviors later on in their, their eating disorder so it's not always necessarily that you start with one eating disorder and it, it stays with you you, you know mm-hmm. some people do but but you can also kind of transition between uh, between eating disorders as um as time goes on yeah. And I think, I think actually this is kind of ringing bells to me. I think we spoke about this on the experts in sport podcast. I think I remember you um, explaining that. Um, go check out the that podcast, by the way. Um, but yeah. I, I really resonate with, from my personal experience with an eating disorder, I really resonate with that transition where I yeah. started out very like thinness orientated and um, I was diagnosed with, um, I think I was anyway, it's, real, it's all a bit of a blur to me. Um, mm-hmm. I know I'm now diagnosed with binge eating disorder, but originally I definitely had that thinness orientated where I exercised a lot and severely restricted my intake. And then somewhere along the line, um, that flitched that switch flicked to um like more muscularity orientated and that's when i started to eat a bit more and then that um then i took on some of those purging behaviors yeah. and so is that something that happens like, is that really common people moving along those lines and and is there is there a particular pattern like does, is it normally from thinness to something else or you know how does it tend to change yeah i, I think it's quite difficult to, to say to be honest george because i think lots of people can kind of perhaps have all of the different elements at the same time whereas some people notice this kind of more typical transition which is perhaps what you were describing in terms of going from more anorexic type anorexic invasive yeah. type behaviors with food restriction and then evolving into to kind of some of these more binge um binge eating and purging related behaviors mm. um but it but it is common i think you know in the in the dsm we we talk about anorexia nervosa and, and there's there's often two types of anorexia nervosa that are referred to there's the restriction only component um where people are just kind of um restricting how much they're eating but then we also have the the kind of binge purge aspect of anorexia nervosa where episodes of this this food restriction are punctuated by by periods of, of binging and purging um so for for I think it's interesting because a lot of people will um, think of an eating disorder and they will automatically um, think about anorexia nervosa type traits with this food restriction, this extreme thinness, um, when in actual fact, that's, I would say, probably binge eating and purging is, is probably a more common um, yeah presentation of, of eating disorder symptoms um, because it occurs uh, across across lots of the different categories it can occur as part of um, anorexia nervosa it can occur in its own right as, as bulimia nervosa and then binge eating obviously it has its own its own recognized disorder as binge eating disorder as well so um you know i think i, I think it's we come up with with these categories to try and help when it comes to, to treating people to diagnosing people mm-hmm. um but it's always it's important to be aware that, that actually in some respects those are quite artificial yeah and that people can can kind of move move from one to another they're not they're not always fixed um and um everyone's experience of an eating disorder will be slightly different mm. yeah and i think that is really important yeah the the they are like you know they are labels that we've created in order to help us you know 
give people help like you know if we can if if we can put people into a a neat box um somewhat anyway then we can think of oh so everyone who fits in this box how can we help those people and then we can you know do test research etc um yeah that's that's really interesting um what so often you hear the term um eating disorders and you also hear the term disordered eating what is the difference between those two yeah so if you imagine a kind of spectrum again this is where um we've tried to create these categories and and to try to kind of define what we mean by an eating disorder when actually i think eating behaviors exist on on this kind of spectrum from all Mm. the way from kind of normal eating behaviors through to to um to through to those clinical eating disorders that we've just been talking about um and at some point there is a cutoff and that, that that kind of cutoff to to um <clears throat> to, to eating disorders is, is uh, the point at which you, you start to meet some of those clinical criteria as defined by things like the DSM. Um, disordered eating is the bit just before that, I guess, where you don't quite meet some of that, those clinical um, criteria. You, you're, you know, you're perhaps um, are not quite at the threshold for, for meeting the severity um, mm. of, a, of a clinical eating disorder. Um, that's not to say that you're your eating behaviors are normal they're, they're still significantly deviating away from that that kind of normal eating um, attitudes and behaviors um, and disordered eating is i guess characterized by some of the same features as, as eating disorders just not quite at the, the kind of severity in order to meet that threshold for diagnosis mm-hmm. um, so people may engage in fasting they may engage in occasional binge purge episodes they may feel like food controls their life um, and they may also experience a, a kind of compromised quality of life as a result of their relationship with food and, and perhaps their relationship with their body yeah. um, so it's important in the sense that people a lot, lots of people with disordered eating um, may then go on to develop a clinical eating disorder so it's it's quite an important predictive factor um, for clinicians and, and researchers if, if someone's presenting with some of these features of disordered eating, then they're at a significantly higher risk of going on to then develop a, a clinical eating disorder. So it's a really important point at which um, interventions and, and support can be targeted to try and prevent that escalation in symptoms to something that becomes much more difficult to, to treat. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's, there's a couple of points that I want to, I want to ask you about. Um, the first one is because uh, I I've on the podcast I've spoken a few times about that that spectrum that continuum and how it's really mm. important and um, I I personally believe that I I would think it would be very rare to find someone who at some at no point in their life would they have at least engaged in some form of disordered eating um, mm-hmm. would you would you agree with that Yeah I think. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, we probably all know someone who goes through episodes of dieting with, mm. um, you know, there's definitely kind of a, um, I guess people are amongst young females, amongst women in general, there's there's kind of a pressure to be seen to be taking some action often about yeah. with regards to your body size and shape and whether that's through food or exercise or, or whatever. Um, I think disordered eating can manifest in in lots of different ways it can be short-lived it can be um, more pervasive um there there are situations when people may feel like they need to use food as a mechanism to help them cope with their current circumstances in mm. life whether that's an emotional impact uh, trauma or or um you know something else that's going on and, and food is a, is a source of comfort and, and kind of it becomes a kind of emotional crook um or crutch um i think 
when we're talking about disordered eating, I guess um, I'm thinking about something that is is relatively pervasive in the sense that it's um, it's there most days. Uh, it's, yeah. Okay. It, it has an impact kind of um, on someone's day to day living. Mm. Um, and if it's if it's short lived and it's it's just a, a kind of brief response to something that's going on in, in in that person's life, but they can revert back to a normal relationship with food perhaps later um, then then that's that's obviously a good thing but it, yeah. it, it probably means that they 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 only met the criteria for disordered eating for a short period of time yeah so yeah okay so to be to really i guess um through the definition of disordered eating it tends to mean that it's it's a part of someone's life for a long period of time um yeah well that it's that it's it's starting to have um yeah quite a significant impact on the individual um yeah. and by that by that very definition it's likely to have been you know something that isn't going away anytime soon and it, it might be be kind of a bit more pervasive than a kind of one-off day when someone's um just having a bad day and, and feels like they need to eat a packet of biscuits yeah, you know, th yeah there's a difference between that and a kind of more um disturbed relationship with food which is is kind of more along the lines of this disordered eating yeah okay that makes sense um so uh, my next question, and I suppose this this kind of challenges what I I maybe originally thought. Um, so I'm interested in your opinion. Um, do you think so? The, the the current like fitness and gym culture, not necessarily just with athletes, but maybe with also just regular gym goers and the fitness community with Instagram and all mm. all the information around food and and things. Um, I'm I'm hesitant to say my opinion because I don't want to I don't want to um, kind of mud the waters i want to i want to hear what your opinion is first but do you, what is your opinion on how that is affecting people in terms of their relationships with with food yeah i guess yeah so. um i think i think it's really interesting um you know how and, and i think probably over the last 12 months or so this is this has probably been exacerbated slightly because of um lockdowns and people not being able to go to mm. to gyms and things and perhaps people spending a lot more time on social media and online um that i mean from a research perspective there's, there's evidence to suggest that you know people who engage with some of this this kind of fitness culture um they're you know they, they're perhaps more likely to internalize some of these particular um body sizes and shapes mm. these ideal these ideals around um perhaps what a what a, a male or a female body should look like um and the internalization of that can often prompt body dissatisfaction if you don't feel like you measure up to some of the the images or the the, the bodies um that are on display mm. um in, on some of those sites or, or kind of in that culture um and body dissatisfaction again is linked to dieting behaviors to disordered eating to, to some of those more severe consequences that we've just been been talking about mm. so um and, and i think it's really difficult for us as human beings to to um recognize what we see as as um as unreal so you know if, if images have been mo uh, modified or uh, they've got filters on or they you, you know our immediate thought is not is not to jump to Oh well, it's been modified. Oh well, it's been you know enhanced in these different ways. You know, we often believe what we see, um, and that can be again set some some unrealistic expectations around what people can achieve um, or, or should be aspiring to achieve with their own bodies. Um, 
which again can can fuel some of these these disturbed practices yeah and this kind of it, i wasn't planning on asking you about this but it's something i've been thinking about a lot recently and i have i have like a little whiteboard in this room that, that is too far away from me so i can't get it but i have like a whiteboard scribbled all these notes so i've been thinking about it recently so i'm interested mm. in your opinion or your thought on this so you know quite quite rightly i think um the being subjected to finspiration or fitspiration. Um, as you call, I think there's a, there's a study by um, Scott Griffiths and um, some mm. of his colleagues that looked at how being subjected to these things seem to increase the amount that we, or at least they correlate with higher levels of um, physical appearance comparison. And then that links to disordered eating symptomology. So mm-hmm. my, but my, my, question and my like thing that I'm a bit confused about because it's something that I experienced myself is why are we drawn to look at them if they're having this negative impact like and this is a very different the kind of a, a weird question but like I I want there, there were times where my Instagram feed was just bodybuilders can't like every yeah. like every other photo was some guy in budgie smugglers like two percent <laughs> body fat like huge and so I was and I, I I got like a dopamine spike from like I feel good like looking at it but I know now that actually it was making me feel worse about myself like what what's your mm. opinion on that why are we drawn to that yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't think I have the answer for you, Georgia, mm. but I think it's it's definitely it's, it's definitely interesting, isn't it, to try and understand why some people feel so connected or, or feel the need to be so connected on, on some of these sites and to, to kind of understand or explore or, or be aware of what other people are doing and how their, their progress is going and things. Um, whereas some people are quite happy to, to kind of live their lives away from, from that um, mm situation and scenario and I think it probably just um you know social media is a a, a wonderful thing in lots of senses but it's also potentially um very damaging and and then there's lots of uh I'm sure techniques that some of these sites use to to try and draw people in and to try and um almost capitalize on people's insecurities Mm. um you know there's algorithms out there that learn what people like you know just on some of these sites people will um you browse something on the internet and then all of a sudden it appears as an advert in in that it's so creepy do you you ever have a conversation with someone and then the next day an advert pops up with the thing you were talking about that freaks me out Yeah. yeah but but you can see how then it draws people in and 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 uh you know you get shown content that is deemed to be more relevant or more suitable mm-hmm. for you um and you know if people if people do have those insecurities around their body and they follow particular um people or sites or, mm-hmm. or um organizations and then they'll often get shown more and more of the same thing which mm-hmm. it, it kind of just escalates um so yeah i mean i i do I'd I'd guess that, that some of these um these uh, these sites and these forums are are just really well set up to to kind of be in tune with with people's wants needs desires mm. and to to kind of fuel off that. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's kind of it's sad, but I think um, playing on people's insecurities is probably one of the best ways to make money. So, mm-hmm. you know, as a business, you think, oh, if we can make people feel bad about themselves and then tell them that our product is how you make yourself feel good, then yeah. we're going to get loads of people buying it, which is like horrible. It sounds horrible even saying it, but that is the kind of the truth, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's some of the things that are so most dangerous about, about some of these social networking sites are in the sense that, um, 
you know a lot of young people use this who don't who don't necessarily have the 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 insights or the autonomy to be mm. able to to differentiate between what's what's good and what's bad on on some of these um mm. these platforms and um but you're right you know a lot of the companies that are uh, advertising to to people on those forums are are businesses and they're, they're trying to make money yeah it's scary um I'm aware that before we started the podcast, I did say to you that I'd waffle on <laughs> and we've, we've now we're 20 minutes in and we've done the first question. So, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll mean, no, no, sorry, it's, it's my fault. I was asking all the questions, but, um, the, the next question, I know you don't necessarily want to talk about stuff that you haven't yet published, but are there any recent papers that you've published or are, you know, you've, you've signed the dotted line are going to be published that you could tell us about? Um, so in terms of some of the research that we're doing at the moment, we, you know, I think um, I'll, I'll probably talk talk more generally about about some of the stuff that we're doing and, and um, yeah, give you some insights into kind of where I think that the field is, is going. I think, yeah. um, you know, there's there's over. So I've been involved in, in research in, in eating disorders in, in athletes for nearly 10 years now, which is quite crazy when I look, look back. But um, there's there's there seems to be quite a bit of repetition there seems to be a lot of um tendencies towards prevalent studies in lots of different groups of athletes in lots of different um uh countries and and trying to establish you know how common is our eating disorders and disordered eating in this group um but i think certainly some of the stuff that my group and and some of the, the phd students that I've, I've worked with have been trying to do over the, the past four or five years is to, to kind of move away from those kind of individual cross-sectional studies um which often produce quite uh, different outcomes you know there's there's lots of competing evidence out there in terms of and lots of variable quality of, of studies in terms of um some of these prevalence or risk factor type type studies so i think you know the the important thing for this area is to to try and move towards more longitudinal research to try and understand what happens to um athletes who present with perhaps disordered eating practices and eating disorders over time you know yeah. how do these evolve how do they develop um you know work with with adolescent athletes is going to be really important to try and track them over a period of time yeah and um, just, just for the people listening at home that's longitudinal studies just in case anyone isn't um, familiar is basically a study that looks over time kind of frequently yeah um yeah yeah we're, we're, rather than just a kind of single snapshot of what's going on in an athlete population which doesn't really tell us where people have come from or where they're going mm -hmm. um you know longitudinal research can can give us a bit more of an insight into how some of these um these attitudes and behaviors develop and how they change mm -hmm. um so i think that's that's really important to help us understand how we can then develop more effective interventions and and mm -hmm. also um provide support at appropriate times whether that's psychoeducate broad psychoeducation type support at an early age or whether it's more targeted intervention for people who are already struggling with with their eating problems mm. so i think there's probably um and certainly some of my phd students charlotte scott and uh, has been doing um some nice longitudinal studies looking at how um over the course of a year how athletes eating behaviors um uh, fluctuate mm. um particularly in relation to things like their relationships with their teammates and how those might be important factors um and so and how they they oscillate or they change over the course of a season because that's one of the, the really interesting things about athletes mm. is that they 
they're they're often in different phases during different times of the year and there's different pressures according to um according to the time of year whether they're in kind of uh, off season or whether they're pre-season or whether in, they're in the middle of a competitive um period or competitive block that can changes the, the, the kind of nature of the pressures that they're experiencing perhaps and, and can have an impact then on on their their broader well-being but also their their eating behaviors um so i think understanding you know the the, the kind of projection or the, the kind of ways in which um the pressures on athletes change over the course of the year is really important again to, to try and understand when and how support might be most effectively delivered to those people who, who are struggling um yeah. Or if, you know, disordered eating practices might be prevalent at, at one type of one point in the year, but then in the off season, they completely dissipate. You know, does that kind of pattern, pattern mm. occur? And I'm not sure we've really kind of, un, we really understand that yet. Um, yeah. You know, is there, is there just a need for athletes to engage with more unhealthy practices during, for a short period of their, their um, competitive season, mm. but then they can return to more normal eating practices um, you know outside of that that specific block for example yeah that is that is um interesting i'm just thinking about you know with the off season and on season obviously the nutrition and the the exercise the training that they'll be doing is going to change significantly um mm. and i would you know you know maybe the in the off season there's less rigidity to their training maybe there's a bit more like fluidity so maybe that'll decrease some of the disordered thoughts and stuff and yeah that is that's really interesting um it sounds yeah it sounds sounds like important stuff i'm excited to see what comes out of that um that sounds very exciting do you do you know roughly is it is it very early doors or you know is there how how long yeah i mean i was, I was speaking generally i guess about where you know i think some of the things that perhaps need to be explored in 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 this area i mean for charlotte stuff we were looking specifically about how the influences of teammates change over um the course of the course of the year um and you know that there's there's lots of nuances there mm. you know um and that there's there's almost so many different things going on that it's quite hard to, to kind of unpack um but but yeah i think um you know there is evidence to suggest that athlete that's athletes um experience uh high levels of anxiety for example as they're going into a more competitive part of their season and we know anxiety is is linked to, to disordered eating practices so mm. um perhaps unsurprisingly you know they t they tend to get more stressed when they're when they're or they're about to compete and and that can have a knock-on effect on on um their eating practices and it's um that kind of leads me on to my next my next thing some somewhat because i was i i think it's um to a point with athletes um it's almost more surprising when an athlete doesn't take on some kind of disordered eating or because they're, they're surrounded by so much pressure around the way that they eat and especially like you know being into fitness and, and stuff is is one thing with all that information about nutrition around you but imagine if your entire career is at stake based on how well you eat <laughs> to, to a point there's you know there is that side of it and um, so i feel like there is this huge amount of pressure and my my question was um you know how common are eating disorders or at least disordered eating maybe in sports um you know and how does that compare to the general population yeah it's a good question and i, I think i kind of alluded to the fact that there's been there's been a lot of a lot of studies trying to to answer that question mm. you know how, how common are eating disorders um in in athletes and 
I I always refer back to a study that was done in 2004 now, which is which is a really long time ago, but it's it's probably one of the most robust um, studies out there in the sense that they mm -hmm. use both a clinical interview and um, and a questionnaire to try and a control group to try and establish that the the, the, um, the prevalence of, of eating disorders in sport. Um, lots of studies since then have been more um, focused on. Uh, just using questionnaire-based based measures, which perhaps aren't, aren't quite as, as accurate in, in determining the actual prevalence uh, or diagnosis of, of potential eating problems. Um, so in, in, that, in that study in 2004, they suggested that up to 20% of female athletes um, and 8% of male athletes presented with clinically significant eating problems. So you know, we're talking about that far end of the spectrum, the, the kind of more um, diagnosable clinical eating disorders. And that that was um, significantly higher than in their control group. So they, they had a nice control group, which was matched for age. Um, so looking at kind of young adults um, adolescents um, in, their, in their control group, they only had about 9% of, of females um, and only about 0.5% of, of males who were presenting with, with clinically significant eating problems. So you can see that in female athletes, it's at least double the risk if not mm. if not higher um and in male athletes it's obviously much much higher than than um in their control or in the general population mm. um so so i like that study in the sense that it, it was really rigorous it was done in norway mm. um and but i think we probably need we probably need a a uk equivalent that, that kind of really um tries to to kind of establish once and for all perhaps what um what these these statistics look like because that there is conflicting evidence out there and and uh, you know there is suggestions that um in some sports at some levels athletes are at no greater risk mm. um whereas in in other sports at a different competitive level there is a, a significantly increased risk and and it will vary across sports so um again the evidence points towards this this um tendency to the higher levels of um disturbed eating practices to exist in sports where there's a particular focus on weight and shape um where perhaps leanness or thinness um constitutes an important part of um an athlete's performance yeah. whether that's um subjective judgment or, or objective outcomes so if i give you some examples sports where we see um perhaps things like endurance sports where perhaps being light is um perceived to be advantageous sports where there's a, a close attention on um physique and appearance so things like gymnastics or figure skating where there's a, a kind of subjective element uh, in there around the body size and body shape um we tend to see higher levels of of disordered eating practices um than sports where that, that emphasis isn't quite as strong but yeah, okay. So yeah, I, I'm just thinking as well. I suppose we had recently um, on um, an athlete called Jane Nisbet. Nisbet. I, I she did tell me how to pronounce her last name, but I, I, <laughs> I was awful at it anyway. Um, who did high jump at the Commonwealth? And I imagine that's a similar one because your body to your sorry your power to weight ratio is going to have a significant impact on your ability to perform. Yeah, so high jump would fall under the category of what, what gets termed in the literature as anti-gravitational sports. So basically mm. anything where you need to kind of lift yourself off the ground. Yeah. Um, and so high jump, pole vault, long jump, those types of sports where um, 
yeah, the, you know, the, the, the kind of power strength ratio is, is really important. And, and actually um, with high jump in particular, you know, you, that bending over the bar, the kind of um, the ability to move your body into some quite weird shapes yeah. in order to be able to be successful. Um, and also the, uh, the requirement or the expectation, I think, in some of those types of sports to wear particular clothing mm. um, and the scrutiny then that happens as a result on, on an individual's body. So, um, you know, I hate it, but it happens all the time. Commentators will make comments. They will um, make judgments, pass judgment on uh, athlete appearance and athlete body sizes and shapes. They'll make comparisons between athletes um and that's reinforced or, or certainly made easier by um the expectations within certain types of sports to wear revealing clothing or tight clothing um as as part of that that sporting um endeavor yeah i i think i saw recently i i, I didn't um i can't remember the name but i think it was a, it was either like a, i think it was a polish or a german gymnast had like a full body suit on rather than like having a the more revealing suit and mm -hmm, they, they mm -hmm. were saying how you know they were hoping it would you know um help other athletes who might want to do the same thing feel more comfortable to do so so do you, do you think that's where hopefully we should be moving towards is, is that kind of thing or, or yeah what's your opinion on that yeah I, I mean it was yeah I, I saw the same thing George I think it was really nice to see someone doing something a bit different in that mm. space and to be allowed to do that as well you know you know I think um there there's not always the freedom of choice necessarily for, for athletes in that space to say well I don't want to wear the the skimpy leotard or the crop top and pants like you know I'd like to wear something different and yeah. it doesn't always I, I think a lot of athletes in that scenario wouldn't always feel like they necessarily had a choice um but seeing other competitors you, you know wearing something different perhaps wearing something um that is that covers them a bit more or makes them feel more comfortable will help mm. to set a, a, a change and a precedent about what you know what they can do in that space mm. um the challenge again is with sponsorship and money and uh, expectations from sponsors in terms of what they they want you to wear and funded athletes or athletes who are receiving sponsorship from clothing organizations uh, may find that they have quite limited choice in terms of what they they are expected or allowed to wear in in that arena yeah and that that actually that's a, a side of it i didn't think about originally yeah the the fact that it might not even be as simple as a gymnast being like okay yeah i'm going to do that as well because the sponsor might be like no we want you to wear this um yeah you that, need the yeah. backing of some of those organizations i think whether that's your governing body or whether it's your sponsor or um you, you know a big clothing company to come out and say you know we're going to change the status quo here and, and um you know not always stick to this norm which which mm. is the tendency to to go with 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 clothing that um enhances body display basically yeah hmm. yeah I, I always seen the my my thoughts on this is, is i tend to see it from there because i'm interested in the whole like muscularity side of things and i always think of a really good example i i have in is in the boxing world um mm. where you know there's tyson fury and anthony joshua who are both probably equally as successful boxers but you 
de- you definitely see considerably more Anthony Joshua on magazines, posters, whatever, because he's got that really muscular, lean physique, whereas Tyson Fury doesn't. So and my immediate thought is like, I wonder why that is, <laughs> you know, and it's just promoting that like this guy, they're both equally successful, but this guy looks better. So he gets the limelight. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a, yeah. I mean, it's, it's what sells, isn't it? I think a lot mm-hmm. of the time, you know, um, and, and sport is not immune, immune to that. You know, it, it would be nice uh, to live in a world where we were focused more on people's performances and their, their achievements as opposed to necessarily their appearance and how well they look on a, the cover of a magazine, but they're, the two are inherently tied together at the moment. And, yeah. um, it, you know, I think we, we li- we're living in a sporting culture where we're, um, you know, commentators are allowed to pass judgment on, on what people look like and, and to, to draw comparisons between people where, when actually, you know, I think we're, we're probably at the stage where we should be challenging some of that and we should mm. be saying, hang on a minute, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what these athletes look like. If you look at the lineup of a race, there, there'll be so much variation in, in people's body sizes and shapes. Um, and yet we we as an audience are often led to believe that there's there's an ideal and that um, you, you know and and that, that the size and the shape of that person's body is somehow relevant when it comes to understanding their performances. Um, yeah, yeah, and it, it it is it does really suck. And one thing I I can't remember what it's it's called. Oh, I do know. There's an Instagram account called um like it's called like um something like she looks like a man or something like that, which is like, it's like a feminist Instagram account talking about like female weightlifters and how you, know, you always get people saying, Oh, you look like a bloke cause you've got muscles and stuff. And um, they put a post up recently that, that really kind of, I suppose, nailed it home. Uh, and there was a, there was, I don't know either of the lifters names, but there was a, a male Olympic weightlifter who had broken the clean and jerk record recently for the, like the heaviest weight category. Um, and if they, the, the, the really big weightlifters do carry like a significant amount of body fat um, mm. and you know, because it helps with their sport. And, and under his comments, it was all like, I'm so blessed to be alive during this moment. What an incredible human being, how amazing. And then mm. they, they showed in contrast on the same competition, um, there was a female, powerlift, a female weightlifter in, um, in a similar category, like the, the upper end of the weightlifting category. And she, I don't think she broke a record, but she won by like a significant amount. She beat everyone by like 20 kilos or something ridiculous. Um, mm. And all the comments under that were like, oh, this isn't an athlete. Like how, you know, all, all this stuff just talking about. So it does almost seem as well that it's it's more more so towards the female athlete population than the males but yeah there there is there is both sides but yeah that that really struck me what do, what do you think about that yeah i mean i think it's just it's indicative of, of societal norms and, and culture and expectations really in terms mm. of we we are more inclined to perhaps celebrate the achievements of 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 men and and perhaps hold women to to a different standard in the sense of um what our expectations are in relation to um their appearance and, and things mm. and and actually the, the sporting environment has obviously been been male dominated and um the, the the challenge for women is that we're in lots of sports we we're not as good as men in the sense that if you make a direct comparison between between men and women they, they can um 
we, we will always we will always uh, come off unfavorably um, and for, for whatever reason there's a tendency to, to kind of focus on their um, their appearance more so and I agree more so than than in in male dominated sports um, um, it's 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 a culture that we need to try and shift you know we need to focus more on women's achievements and and their performances and and the, the brilliance and the, the magnificence behind some of those performances as opposed to um you know the context or the appearance of, of the person that is delivering those mm. um but it's it's a really difficult culture to to try and shift um, yeah. and it's going to take it's going to take a lot more energy and effort and time probably for people to to accept that it, it does need to change yeah and it, i suppose it's, it's something that's been you know ever since sport began we've built this this idea of like you know the men's sport is the important one and, and you know so it, breaking that down is going to be something that yeah like you say takes time and um yeah. this kind of it, ca- it, sorry no i was just going to say you know we, we are seeing slightly mm. you know there have been shifts in, in lots of sports towards kind of greater equity and equality whether that's just in prize money or whether it's in um you know showing for example women's football on television which is mm. you know hasn't has been a relatively new thing over the last four or five years but but and those are really positive steps for the exposure of women's sport um and but kind of to redress this balance a little bit yeah. but it, it's it's going to take time mm, yeah yeah i agree um so you know we've spoken a lot about this kind of um eating disorder that had seemed quite prevalent within sports and within athletes. Do you know if there is anything you know happening at the moment or stuff that's being done to try and address it or to try and help it? Yeah, so I think this this kind of sits within the broader kind of mental health and sport landscape. So mm. um, over the past probably four or five years, there has been a bit more energy um, devoted to, to trying to um, deal with mental health problems mental health concerns um within the sporting context and um you know that has been as a result of huge lots of different things whether that's high profile cases of people who struggled bullying which has been happening in in various ngbs or um you know concerns about practices um when it's come to to supporting athlete mental health um so there have been positive um government initiatives to try and um change or raise awareness around the importance of protecting and preventing mental health problems um in in sports populations whether that's athletes but also the people working within that space um and tanny gray thompson obviously doing thompson has done lots of work in, in, in trying to um be set some important policies and, and um, guidance around this area for uk sport and other um governing bodies in, in terms of how they can move forward in in using sport as a as a positive vehicle for mental health but also ensuring that those particularly within high level sport are protected as best as possible um it's so that's that's broadly speaking kind of around around mental health but eating disorders obviously my passion and and your passion in in terms of that is obviously only a small component of, of any of that um and and whilst the kind of policy changes is, is fantastic and it, it's um it it does set a nice landscape within which to, to kind of develop some of these these things it doesn't always translate very quickly to to kind of changes on the ground and particularly changes at different levels of sport so um 
I think probably what we're seeing at the moment is initiatives at elite level sport or um, support and resources for those on funded programs, for example, to um, access clinical psychology support or, um, you know, it, therapy for, for eating disorders or, or other things. Um, but that that is not pervasive across all sports and it's not mm. pervasive across all levels of sports. So access to mental health support is still a bit hit and miss um even for those people on on kind of funded programs or who are in kind of talent development um and and that's the same for eating disorders as well as for the kind of other um, mental health problems that may arise um so it's i think it's heading in the right direction um you know there's there's definitely a rhetoric around we need to increase awareness we need to uh, it, you know encourage a conversation around around mental health we need to think about how we can equip people who are working in sport with the skills necessary to be able to um address identify support people signpost those with um with mental health issues and, and specifically eating disorders um but it's it's taking it's taking time um so from our, our own perspective we've we've um developed a, a series of resources around yeah eating disorders in sports specifically for coaches and sports professionals who are um wanting to learn more about this area and wanting yeah. to kind of um upskill basically um one of the things that not frustrates me but one of the things that, that as a as an academic as a researcher i've noticed over the years is people telling me how much they want information Mm. Uh, around eating disorders um, in athletes usually because of their experiences of having worked with a person uh, an athlete with um with an eating problem and not really knowing how best to support that person or where to signpost them to support mm. um so that was one of the reasons why we we developed a, a kind of online training tool to to support coaches and 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 others working within sport to to upskill and to to i to um, educate them on you know this is what eating disorders look like this is how you can support them um this is where you should be signposting people with with um eating disorders or people with concerns about their eating um to you know how you, how you can best facilitate that um i think lots of coaches certainly from our own research have told us that they they get worried yeah. about um how to have that conversation with athletes how to approach them how to how to support them best uh, and what kind of action they, they should or shouldn't be be taking mm. um and often will take the responsibility on around how to manage that and sort of you know purely on their own shoulders which you know that's absolutely not the expectation mm. the expectation is that coaches will be a mechanism for you know offering additional support but also signposting to um organizations and services where people can um give the athlete the, the support they need yeah and I, i've i've done the um the course you were talking about um is it still available on online it is yeah so um i can provide a web link towards yeah it I'll, that's helpful yeah i'll put that in the description for people if they want to access that because it is really good um i made lots of notes and i still refer to them all the time so that they're, they're, it is really good i would recommend everyone to 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 look at that um Thanks, and uh, no, seriously though, I'm not, not even a plug. Um, you can slip me that twenty pound note afterwards. But um, uh, no, uh, and actually as well, I am um, currently working with some researchers from Nottingham University on a um, 
project looking to develop we're using i can say about it now originally i couldn't say I, so many times on the podcast I've been like i'm working on something that i can't talk about but um, <laughs> we're we're making a training tool for coaches personal trainers people who work in a gym environment um and we're actually making a, a it's really it's really exciting we've got the the kind of voices all together now we're making a small animation to like show the experiences of people from all spans. So we've got three kind of, I can't say too much. We've got three characters that show a wide variety of different body images. Um, so, mm. you know, to show that, to promote the fact that, you know, people can have an issue with over-exercising as part of an eating disorder at any mm. body shape. It doesn't have to be someone who is, you know, the classic, very thin person on a mm. treadmill. It can be anyone. Um, and I'm really excited for that to come out as well. So um, people keep your eyes peeled for that as yeah, well definitely. um and speaking of of you know what what people can look out for or what people can do do you think there's anything that people you know just the people sitting at home um who maybe aren't you know specifically in the sporting or fitness world but just have an interest you know do you think there's anything that they can do to to start helping people so uh yeah i mean so are we talking specifically about people who are struggling with with their eating or are we talking about how we can as a society kind of yeah. so yeah yeah Pe people in general how can they help people who have who might be struggling with an eating disorder yeah okay i mean I, so so i think that um one of the bit one of the biggest issues for people with eating problems is talking about it and mm. acknowledging that they have a have a problem um so if if you suspect or you know or you are someone tells you that they're struggling with their their eating problem with an eating problem then um you know that is that is a hugely important moment for that person and it's very uh, it's taking a lot of strength and courage for someone to come and, and have that make that disclosure or to 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 kind of come forward and, and say that they're they're struggling so being supportive and and um you know thanking the individual for 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 uh coming forward and, and talking to you is is really really important because it has it's quite a monumental moment um uh, in in that recovery process for that individual to actually come forward and say, I, you know, I think I've, I think I'm struggling here. Um, eating disorders in their very nature are often characterized by um, denial um, and, you know, reluctance to admit that there, there is an eating problem going on. Uh, and actually if someone's already at the stage where they, they're, they're ready to talk about it, then that's a really, really positive thing. Mm. And as a, as a friend, as a peer, as a, um you know mother father coach teammate whatever it is um you know encouraging that that person from that point onwards to continue to talk about it and to to go and seek support from um whether it's charitable organizations uh, i know uh, george has mentioned first step cd mm -hmm. there's also beat there's abc there's there's other charities out there or to go and seek support from their gp um to to try and get referred perhaps to, to more specific eating disorder support is is really important to make sure that that eating disorder then gets appropriately treated and and addressed um so you know i think as a as a friend or partner or um teammate or coach or whoever you are um it, it the the tendency can sometimes be want to try and deal with that yourself and, and to try and you know support the individual um in uh you know they might ask you to keep it a secret or they might not ask they might not want you to to kind of um take take that on and it's really important to be aware of your own mental health in that situation you know try not to take on too much of the burden of that yourself mm. um it's really important to try and seek um appropriate uh proper you know support um 
clinical support charitable support whatever that is where people are trained to be able to to effectively support people with with eating problems rather than trying to then try and internalize and deal with all of that yourself because it can be really challenging for for people who are close to an individual with an eating disorder to actually um to manage and it might be that you also need to talk to someone as a result of some of those disclosures yeah. or as a result of um any worries or stress that you're experiencing of watching someone go through some of those those problems um yeah i don't know if you wanted to say any more on that george in terms of you, your own experiences around um, yeah I, I, disclosure I, and things yeah i think um i agree with you 100 and i i think i understand i you know as someone who has an eating disorder and it has been that person coming and saying coming forward even i can still sympathize with being the person who's being told it and understanding how like you know scary that moment can be because i think your initial response is like shit i like <laughs> this person's mm -hmm. like now now expect me to fix them or something but that's not that's not what's going on um i think what's really important there as, as you said carolyn is that you know you're, it's not your job to be a clinician you're not a, you know yeah. unless you actually are a clinician in which case that is your job but you know um you know it's not your job to be to be a clinician it's your it's your job to be a friend to be someone just there to support them and even if even if someone comes and you literally don't know anything just say saying you know i don't know anything but i'm willing to you know help you find something i'm willing to like sit there with you and look up the beat website or the first steps website or you know mm -hmm. um beat have a really cool little leaflet online that you can get for you to take to your gp so you download it you write some stuff on it and then you can just hand it straight over to your gp and then they know what to do if you know if your gp isn't isn't quite sure how to do it themselves um so yeah you know there's loads of stuff that you can do there but if you are that person just yeah just don't don't think that you have to fix people you don't just be there for them um, and that's mm -hmm. that's all we can ever ask so mm. yeah thank you um We've been talking for nearly an hour now, so I'm going to go on to the closing questions and the hardest, the hardest questions the of hardest the entire, the entire podcast. So the first one is name a person, either real or fictional, who inspires you. Okay, I might cheat on this question, George, <laughs> with several I get, people. I get a lot of cheaters. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Can I, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think... <laughs> it depends on your stage of life doesn't it so when I was when I was uh, growing up I was a aspiring young female athlete and uh, you know was very much inspired by um, female role models in my event and and uh, at the time so Kelly Holmes and, and Paula Radcliffe and people like that were very much kind of inspirations to me that it was possible to be successful female um, athletes and to, to, to win medals and to break records and and those types of things um and so so yeah certainly they they uh, inspired me as, a, as an mm. athlete um i think in my perhaps more my my day-to-day -day, my day-to-day -day job my as an academic my, my phd supervisors were a huge inspiration to me in terms of what's possible and the the uh, encouraging me to, to kind of uh pursue a career in, in academia and um you know to get a sense of value and and uh that, that the work that we we do is valuable and it can make a difference to people's lives mm. you know i think that's that's really important to be to believe in what you do on a and on day-to-day -day basis and, and certainly yeah. that was instilled in me as uh by my phd supervisors caroline and, and john um and then just on a on a day-to-day -day basis i think being a, a female academic 
um you know i draw inspiration from all of the the, the women that i work with uh, the other the other women that are um you know navigating the challenges of, of being a female academic and trying to to um you know deliver high quality world-class research as well as um you know being a woman and and i think certainly yeah my colleagues at loughborough university inspire me daily to um yeah keep pursuing and keep working hard and keep delivering um uh, high quality research awesome well i think it was worthy of the cheating so i'll okay that's it's all good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much and they all they're all incredible people question two is um a moment in your life that you didn't like at the time but now looking back you know that positives came from it yeah and again i was i guess i was thinking um or that what sprung to mind when when uh you sent over this question george was was um facing an injury as an mm. athlete um as a young adolescent athlete um at the time it felt like the worst thing in the world and um, you know, I think where if you've never been injured before, if you've never experienced something which has perhaps slowed your progress or completely stunted your progress in 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 a particular area, whether that's um, in my case it was it was sport, but it, it it came as a real shock, and it came at a time when you know you're I was navigating GCSEs, I was navigating A levels uh, or moving on to A levels, but also trying to be you know the highest level in my in my sport and all of a sudden that's that gets taken away from you and it, and it's really difficult to adjust to that shift in identity uh you know as an adolescent you're trying to build your your uh who your sense of who you are your sense of purpose um and for me as an adolescent being being an athlete was was a huge part of my life and and uh, facing an injury um you know quite a severe um stress factor injury which put me out of the 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 kind of um out for a season it meant that i missed uh, competitions that i'd been been striving for um and and it was really difficult at the time because you when you're in it you don't you you can't see the end you can't see that this will pass and that something else will come good things will come out of it and and the other you know you'll develop life skills as a result of of having gone through those experiences um just at the time it's it's the worst thing ever yeah. um and i think it made me realize that you know that that yes sport was important to me but it wasn't the be all and end all and that there mm. were other things that i was good at that i could pursue that um that actually having an injury meant that i could spend more time with my school friends i wasn't always traveling or um training and doing other things and that you could i could be normal for a while mm. um so uh, and eventually you know moved on to explore some of the reasons behind why that injury occurred and and developed an interest in in um in the work that i'm doing now so you know it, there, there's definitely lots of positives that have come out of it but but i um you know i do understand when when an injury for, for athletes feels like the end of the world and i i love that question because i think you know, people who are listening to the podcast, I, I, I like to think that that question um, always has a good impact because it's, you know, if you are going through that, you know, if you are an athlete here and you've, you're going through an injury, and I, I know I can think immediately of a couple of people who I know who are athletes who, have current, who are currently injured who do listen to this podcast sometimes, um, you know, it, 
things positive things do come from it even if it does feel like your entire identity is is falling apart you know you it helps you adapt it helps you learn new things and and you know there are positives that come from it too so and it's only temporary you know it might feel like it's it's gonna last forever but it but it is only temporary and that Mm. we show our resilience and how we bounce back from some of these things Mm. um yeah you know the chances are if you're pursuing career in sport you will face an injury at some point it's it's kind of how you you deal with and manage that situation and who you get to help you manage that situation that becomes really important Mm. yeah agreed Uh, and the final question is a phrase to live by yeah i I don't think this is going to be a very original answer i'm afraid george but carpe carpe diem diem is is one of my phrases seize the day i remember an old coach uh well, they're not old and an ex-coach um who um who coached me when I was an adolescent and uh moved over to Australia and, and um we kept in touch by letter back then gosh not <laughs> not just email um and he would sign each letter carpe diem you know and, and that's something that's just really stuck with me about seize the day make the most of each moment and and um you know try not to let life pass you by because we we only have a short amount of time on on this earth and it's about making the most of the impact that we can have as individuals and and in collaboration with with other people you know there's there's we have we have a small wind of opportunity to have a positive impact and um yeah i guess that's what i'm trying to do in in this area yeah that's awesome thank you um and actually it's the first it is the first person to say that so it is it is an oh, original um so okay. yeah brilliant thank you um carolyn thank you so much for coming on today um just for the people listening is there anywhere people can find you like i don't know social media websites whatever yeah so uh my twitter handle is at carolyn plateau um if you want to drop me an email um i am c.r.plateau at loveproductac.uk and if you are interested in our online course for coaches and sports professionals then it's www.deia.org.uk but I can send all those details to George in yeah. due course as well. Yeah, they'll be in the description below for everyone who is listening. Thank you so much again for, for coming on. Um, and everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. And I will see you at the next episode. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out MayaMinds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.